stress. It's all around us. It's in the papers, it's on the news. We're a stressed out nation. Right, thank you. That's enough. I don't want to hear another word. Okay, right, Greg. What could be more stressful than facing 28, 9, and 10 year olds every day, being responsible for their primary education, for looking after them, making sure they behave and are safely delivered back to their parents? I'm Stuart Peterson, and I spent a day at an inner city primary school with teacher Chris Jameson to find out what goes on in the body when we're under stress. Good morning, everyone. Um, I've chosen a hymn which we all know for our first assembly together of the term. So I'd like to hear lots of lovely singing, please. Straight after morning assembly, Chris is on playground duty. Well, here we are. We've just caught up with Chris as he's on playground duty in the morning break. How's it going? Not bad, thank you, yeah. Oh, going well. And I wonder if you could tell me what sort of things in your job make you feel stressed? I think pressure to get things done on time mm-hmm. and you know you're always working to time limits even within a lesson also there's the stress to get things done for other people other members of staff where like I'm responsible for the music curriculum and um, other teachers are responsible for areas of the curriculum so that can be quite stressful to make sure they're done but what exactly is stress and why does it exist Robert Sapolsky is a neuroscientist at Stanford University, California. He's an expert in the physiology of stress. If you are some animal who's been ripped open by a predator and you're running for your life, your body does certain things. Bizarrely enough, if you are a westernized human sitting in a frustrating traffic jam, some of the very same things. And part of where stress-related disease comes from is the fact that our stress response is fabulous for sprinting away from the predator and does nothing good for us when it's in the case of the traffic jam. What about uh, acute stress? For example, when you're in a classroom and there's an acutely stressful situation, how do you know? What's happened to your body that tells you that? I think you kind of feel extremely tense. And, I mean, I won't say you you can feel your pulse rate go up, but you would probably imagine that it is. Um, There's only been once when I can actually remember feeling... It's kind of almost strange sensation where it was after school. I went into the head teacher's office. She'd called me in to speak about something. All of a sudden, I came out and felt, wow, I was just in there, and I can't remember what she said or anything. That's only ever happened once, sort of about a year ago. And I said to one of my colleagues, and he said, oh, that's probably stress. A whole range of things in the environment and in our minds can act as stressors, factors that induce the stress response. Patricia Ash is Associate Lecturer at the Open University. Stressful stimuli include physical trauma, prolonged exposure to cold, shock, infection, fright, sleep deprivation, pain and emotional stresses. And although there's a great variation in the types of stressful stimuli, the sweet physiological responses to all of them are essentially similar. So what exactly is involved in that suite of physiological responses? 
Everybody knows that the key hormone of the stress response is adrenaline, known in the United States as epinephrine. Adrenaline is the workhorse of the stress response. It's in your bloodstream within a second of something beginning to happen. Uh, somewhat lesser known is another branch of hormones that come out of your adrenal glands as well, um, called glucocorticoids. And these are secreted within about a minute or so of the onset of stress. And adrenaline and glucocorticoids work hand in hand. They mobilize energy from your liver and your fat cells. They increase the rate at which your heart beats, the force with which it beats, your blood pressure goes up. They turn off the secretion of reproductive hormones. They suppress the immune system. They suppress growth. They suppress, for example, the deposition of calcium into your bones, things of that sort. They shut down your digestive tract. Those are all the things that are absolutely critical for surviving a short-term stressor. Those are the things which in excess can give you stress-related disease. Cortisol is one of the better-known glucocorticoids. What does it do? Well, basically, it has two roles. First of all, it mobilises fuel reserves, and then it protects the body from the damaging effects of stress. It stimulates the breakdown of triacylglycerols from adipose tissue, breaking up fat into fatty acids and glycerol, and they are transported into the bloodstream. Cortisol also stimulates the breakdown of proteins, releasing amino acids into the bloodstream, where they are taken up by the liver and used for gluconeogenesis. Interestingly enough, the amino acids also provide precursors for protein synthesis, which may be required during wound healing. Essentially, they help an animal or a person to cope with a very sudden stress, and this is called the popular name is the fight or flight response. Leslie, come here. Now. Can you see what you've done to this poor boy? No, I don't want to hear I didn't. You did push him and I want you to say exactly what has happened and why it has happened. Because there is a child crying here, Leslie, and you're responsible for that. Are you okay? Maybe you better ask if he's okay. Are you all right, Suban? No? Right, Lizzie, you can take him indoors and make sure he gets to Mrs. Atunda. Okay? Hold his hand. I wanted to find out more about Chris's response to stressful events like these. So earlier, I wired him up with monitors to collect data on two indicators of stress, heart rate and blood pressure. At the end of the day, we'll take a look at the data they've collected. I wonder if Chris is likely to experience the same symptoms of stress as me. A question I put to Eric Brunner, expert in the physiology of stress at University College, London. One of the most common that we can recognise is the tightening that we feel in our stomach. And that tightening is very much a physiological, hormonal, neurological response. And it's interesting how similar it is in very positive situations and in very negative situations. And that's an indication that there is a common stress response. The hormones that we recognize as central to the human stress response, exactly the same picture in primates, mammals, vertebrates, a fair number of invertebrates as well. It's a very, very ancient system. In terms of do we all turn on the stress response in the same circumstance, that's the critical point. Break somebody's leg, maul them with you know a predator's canines, everybody will turn on a stress response. Get a psychologically ambiguous situation, and only some of us do. Sorry about that. 
We've well, just seen some acute stress there, haven't we? With the yeah, I think so. So what do you do to deal with acute stress? Well, I do a few things, I suppose. I'm a keen musician. I like to sing and play the guitar, and I find that very relaxing. So even at a lunchtime, once the children are out, I might just for two minutes pick up the guitar, play that. I find that kind of unwinds me. I can let emotion out that way. Um, talking to friends and colleagues, usually not about school-related things, is quite a good way of winding down. And I suppose you could also say that I like to eat and drink well. I like to go home and make sure that I don't starve myself. <laughs> I like to sort of take pleasure in things which I enjoy, make sure I don't live and breathe school all the time. Right, it's time to blow the whistle. Class five, I want to see one line now. Thank you. Good, excellent, Kaylon. You'll make the army. Well done. Brilliant. Right, in we go. Is there anybody who doesn't have a sheet? Good. Right, once you've got your sheet, you need to close your mouths and start your work. Because I'm going to be working with two children. Well, here we are outside of Chris's classroom where he's looking after a class of nine and ten-year-olds who are learning about mathematics. We've got him rigged up with monitors so that we can measure his heart rate and his blood pressure throughout the lesson, and we're going to see how they change during the different events that happen. Right, Dean, I want you to move up one. I want to sit there. Thank you. OK, guys? Now... What we need to do, where's your maths books? You haven't even got them out yet. Come on, wake up. All the children have buckled down to their tasks now. They've got their noses stuck in their books and they're writing furiously. And Chris is wandering around making sure that everyone has everything that they need. How do you expect to get anything done? I don't know what the conversations are, but they need to stop now. Thank you very much. Good. And now one or two of the children are getting up and moving around. He's managed to settle them down just by glaring at them. They've all gone back to their places. Although obviously expert in that particular technique of control, Chris was under all kinds of pressures, and I wondered how they might be affecting his body. Eric Brunner. There is a basic common underlying response, and that response starts usually in the central nervous system and the signal that it sends to the body is either a nervous signal or a hormonal signal or both and this activates certain systems which control the internal environment. How might repeated activation of these systems affect the body in the long term? Cortisol and adrenaline effectively switch off growth, reproduction and the immune system. And the body experiences excessive wear and tear because of the raised heart rate. Aggregation of blood platelets, which is an important component of the fight-or-flight response, can trigger a heart attack. Other prolonged reactions to stressful situations can lead to peptic ulcers, high blood pressure, stroke, heart disease, migraine. The prolonged exposure to high levels of cortisol inevitably weakens the immune responses and so it might increase susceptibility to infection. I'm 
listening to all the conversations around me all the time. You seem to forget I've got that skill. Right. The mind and the body are intimately connected and the responses of the immune system are exquisitely tuned to our mental state. Now, what's interesting is that despite that observation, it has been very difficult to demonstrate that stress really does have an important effect from a health point of view on our immune systems. However, there is some evidence, for example, that we are more susceptible to respiratory infections, the flu and colds, um, if we've been more stressed than usual. And in animal studies, it's been shown, I think very interestingly, that those animals which have close connections with their fellow animals are less likely to show a weakening of the immune function when they're subjected to stress. In fact, it turns out that when it comes to stress, animals can tell us a lot, as is clear from Robert Sapolsky's research amongst wild baboons. Well, for the last 23 years, I've been studying a population of wild baboons living in the Serengeti in East Africa. And if you're interested in stress and issues of real animals in the wild and who gets stress-related diseases, you're going to have to deal with a non-human primate. They're one of the only beasts out there that are sophisticated enough to generate psychological stress. If you're going to do it with any primate species, baboons are perfect for it. They live out in the open. You're able to anesthetize them, take blood samples, examine them. They're not endangered. They live in these huge social groups. And for the particular baboons that I study, they are perfect for my interests. Because out there in the world of you know, nature, bloody and tooth and claw, a baboon living in the Serengeti actually has a pretty good life. Lots of food. You work about three hours a day for your calories. Predators don't mess with you very often because of the big groups that you live in. And essentially what you have is eight or nine hours of free sunlight every day to devote all of your energies into making another baboon miserable. And they're very good at generating social stress for each other. So how do you go about studying wild baboons? First branch is you do your basic Jane Goodall number, which is you observe the animals, and there's actually a very rigorous science as to how to observe wild animals and collect very objective quantitative data. The second half is trickier because you have to capture the animals, you have to anesthetize them under circumstances where you can get measures of stress hormone levels in their bloodstream in the absence of stress, and what I wind up doing is using an anesthetic blowgun system, which is actually quite fun to use, um, and it has a lot of constraints. You can't use an anesthetic that messes up the hormones you're looking at. You've got to dart everybody the same time of day to control for daily rhythms of hormones. You can't dart somebody if he knows it's coming. There can't be anticipatory stress. And finally, you need to get a blood sample within a couple of minutes of the anesthetic beginning to work. So given all those constraints, when it works right, you have an animal where that first blood sample tells you just what resting levels of all those hormones are. And at that point, you can hold on to this baboon for a day or so and do some of the exact same clinical studies you would do in a human, you wind up having to have dry ice and run a centrifuge off of a Jeep battery, things of that sort. And when it's all over with, the animal recovers, let him loose back out of the cage, and he's back to his troop the next day doing just fine. Hanging out with baboons in the Serengeti sounds like fun. But what exactly does it tell us about stress? Social status seems to be important. 
Rank has an enormous amount to do with physiology, and what you wind up seeing is low-ranking baboons get the elevated blood pressure, the elevated levels of the stress hormones, the reproductive impairments, the immune suppression, and this makes perfect sense on a first pass. If you're a low-ranking baboon, lots of physical stress, people take food away from you, you spend half the morning getting somebody to groom you and it gets broken up so you're covered with parasites, if somebody's in a bad mood, you're the first one who gets slashed by their cane things of that sort, lots of psychological stress, lack of control, lack of predictability. What these studies seem to show was rank is destiny. What turns out to be much more interesting and much more subtle is rank is much less important than I was initially sensing. Lots of qualifiers. It's not just your rank, it's the sort of society in which the rank occurs. And being high-ranking in a stable dominance hierarchy is wonderful. You have all the social control. You've got the great physiology. Being high-ranking in an unstable society means you're right in the middle of the revolution. And in those circumstances, it's the high-ranking baboons who have the worst stress profiles. Next variable is, it's not just your rank, it's not just the society, it's your personal experience of it. So if you're in a low-ranking baboon and you happen to luck out and you're in a troop where you don't get your nose rubbed in it very often, your stress profile is going to be very different than being equally low-ranking in a troop that's horrible to its low-ranking members. The final variable is probably the most important one, which is personality. Baboons differ as to whether they see watering holes as half empty or half full, and it makes a huge difference. Do you see provocations everywhere? How close does your worst rival have to get to you before you take a vigilant stance? Do you have social support? How often do you groom someone, sit in social contact, things of that sort? If you lose a fight, do you go and mope by yourself? Do you interact socially? And what you wind up seeing is, after controlling for rank, baboons who see provocations everywhere, who don't have social support, those are the ones with a horrible physiology. It's not so much the rank in these animals as much as the personality, the way they view their station in life. But how do we know if position in the hierarchy causes or is caused by stress levels? key question in looking at these sort of correlations is the usual chicken and egg type thing. What comes first? Does high rank cause you to have the good physiology? Does the good physiology cause you to have the high rank? Lots of people who've studied these issues in captive animals have actually gotten a very clear answer. And it may not be in the direction that most people would initially guess. You look at behavior, you look at hormones, which is more important, which is more impressive. Ah, hormones, that's modern science. You need to wear a lab coat to study hormones. Hormones obviously control the behavior. What the studies show instead is it's the other way around. The behavior comes first, the rank comes first, and then the physiology follows from that. So what does this mean for us? Okay, so the dread question, uh, is any of this useful to us at all as humans? Um, the first thing to emphasize in that is it is definitely not relevant to go from the notion of a baboon social rank to the notion of a human's. Social rank in humans is a very, very nebulous concept. In some ways, the problem is that humans do very sophisticated psychological things with their, quote, rank. So you have somebody who in one setting is, quote, very low ranking, and this person rank 
rationalizes away why it doesn't matter to them, etc. Another thing is we belong to a number of ranking systems at the same time. So you have some guy who's very low ranking in his occupational totem pole, and this is the same person who is the captain of his weekend football team, and you know which hierarchy he's going to consider more important. Third variable is in human studies, it's often not so much your rank as much as your interpretation of it. And you look at people, for example, in a marathon run, and where you come in in the race is not so much the predictor of stress physiology as whether you better your own previous time. So you get some guy who is anticipating dropping dead somewhere halfway through the marathon, and instead he staggers in and finishes. He's in a great state of mind, often great physiologically, and you get the guy who was slated to be in the top three finishers, and instead he wilts and comes in number four, and this guy is highly stressed. So the notion of transferring from rank and animals to those of humans is very, very suspect. One of the only realms in which it works is socioeconomic status, because that's big enough of a variable that that really blankets lots of things be of low socioeconomic status and all sorts of aspects of health especially stress-related health are not going to be doing as well all right let's do this then we go out to lunch i'm trying i want to hear you what's better after a pretty varied morning the children were off for lunch and I had another chance to talk to their teacher. Well, here we are with Chris in the classroom, ready to go off for his lunch after the lesson. Chris, what were the highs and lows of that lesson? What went well and what were you not so happy with? I think as, as I came in, I'd come in from playground duty. I was sort of fairly wound up from that. Then I think once I'd done the main teaching and I actually sat down with the two children I was working with, I think for a while I started to relax a bit there. I think it, that even though I was teaching, I was only teaching two children. I was fairly confident that the other children knew what they were doing and obviously I had to sort of keep an eye on them, make sure they weren't up to any mischief. But generally I think they were all on task. How wound up do you think you have to be to do that well? You need to be wound up. You need to have extension activities in your mind for the children that finish early you need to have strategies and not only strategies but time to give to the children who are going to struggle I think you need to be very conscious of time and you need to be very conscious of all the different things going on around you Chris went off to join his colleagues for lunch I was interested in what he said about needing some stress to work properly Eric Brunner it's good to react there is a useful function to the fight-or-flight response and to other stress responses. What's important is that we can then return to baseline, we can then return to the resting condition and that there will be some interval between the stress challenges. Could the hierarchical effects seen so clearly amongst the baboons also be at play in the staff room? The way that we need to study this is very much to take a large group of individuals, follow them, see which ones feel that they're being subjected to chronic stresses of one sort or another, and to see how their physiology changes and ultimately whether they develop the diseases which we think are linked to stress. In fact, this is exactly what Eric Brunner and his research group are doing, analysing stress levels across a large group of civil servants in the Whitehall 2 study. The Whitehall 2 study has made a couple of really important observations. One is the stepwise gradient in coronary heart disease. 
for each step you go down the employment grades, the risk of heart disease increases. It's not a threshold effect, it's a gradient right across from the top to the bottom. And it's interesting that this is a group of people, none of whom are short of money in a, in a very serious way, and yet we still see this gradient. And it could be that stress is one of the explanatory factors in that gradient. One of the other and related observations is that if we try to explain this gradient from a statistical point of view, then the three conventional risk factors, smoking, blood pressure and raised serum cholesterol, do not explain even half of this gradient. And again, this provides room for alternative explanations which would include stress and dietary factors, both of which we're examining in the study. What we're hoping to do in the future is to answer two main questions. Does stress cause heart attacks in healthy people? And secondly, how much of the social gradient in the risk of developing heart attacks among healthy people is due to stress? Back to lessons, and the children are busy working together in groups, learning about solids, liquids and gases. The last one is the main test for strength. It involves sharp things. If I scrape it, I'm good boy, scratch. The best test in the world to see seem how to be going hard fine. something is. Chris seems pretty relaxed, but will the monitors he's wearing tell a different story? And if they do, just how important should we consider stress as a health issue? I most certainly would rather deal with a traffic jam every day than be some medieval peasant or some farmer in the developing world watching locusts devour my crops. Why you get more stress-related diseases in the West is for the very simple reason that we don't die of the typical hominid infectious diseases and diseases of poor nutrition or poor hygiene. For most of hominid history, what getting sick and dying is about is getting some horrible diarrheal disorder when you're at age 20 and dying of dehydration 24 hours later. And we have this luxury instead of slowly clogging our blood vessels, slowly killing our brain cells, etc. Certainly we are not more stressed in the West, we simply have the luxury of having the time to get the stress-related diseases. Life expectancy at the beginning of the 20th century was about 45, by the end of the century it was about 75. So if we look at the big picture we can say stress may be important, it may be important for psychological health and it may also be important for physical health, but that did not stop the, the most enormous rise in life expectancy that humankind has ever seen. The day is over and the children are on their way home. Chris and I sit down to have a look at the data. And we've got on the screen in front of us a plot of how your heart rate has varied from the beginning of your teaching day until the end. And you can see it's gone up and down quite a bit from a minimum of about uh, 70 beats per minute up to a maximum of over 100 beats per minute. Now we've got the first hour here and we've got a heart rate which starts off at about 20 past 8, at around about 90. And then at about 10 to 9, the heart rate goes up to 120. What happened at 10 to 9? At 10 to 9, I went out into the playground and blew the whistle, which was a signal for all the classes to line up, and then their teachers would lead them in, usually straight, direct route up to their classes. However, this morning, because we've got 
carpenters and painters in at the moment, it was brought to my attention by the head teacher at 10 to 9 that I had to take my children through a different route, through the hall, then outside, across a different playground and in. So that may have altered my heart rate in some way as a kind of added stress. And uh, as they entered the classroom, they're in a habit with me where they take out a reading book and read silently whilst I would then enter into doing the register. What we can see very clearly on the trace here is that between about 9 o'clock and 10 past 9, your heart rate is at its lowest in this particular frame, around about 80 beats per minute, but that when you start to ask the class to do things, your heart rate begins to rise. Well, the next trace shows that from about 20 past 10, for about 15, 20 minutes or so, your heart rate peaks quite high and goes up and down. What was happening then? Right, well, that had been the end of my literacy lesson. I'd walk the children down to assembly, where the whole school meets, and I was responsible for providing the guitar accompaniment to the hymn during that time. So you were actually performing? Yes, I suppose I was. Are you conscious of your heart rate being high when you're performing? No, I don't think I am. But it was. Mm. So you can see that, again, performance... Added pressure. (laughs) pressure to the system. So you can see that the fluctuations in your heart rate are well correlated with what you've been doing, in part because of changes in your physical activity, but also in part because of the emotional response to the activities that you were undertaking. Yes. And that prepares you as an adaptive response to deal with those sorts of situations. Well, now we've downloaded the second set of data, which is looking at the changes in your blood pressure during the day. Now, the blood pressure machine measures your blood pressure every 15 minutes during the day, so we've got very many fewer data points. But we can look to see, just in general, how things change. And if you look at the beginning of the day, your blood pressure is exactly what we would expect it to be, and normal for someone of your age. But then we find that it begins to go up and down in association with various activities. For example, if we look at about half past ten, or just before half past ten, your blood pressure was really quite high. What was happening then? That was um, the assembly period in which I was playing the guitar in front of the whole school. Yes, that's right. And then if we come about ten or fifteen minutes later, your blood pressure was higher still. Hmm. And that was when we were interviewing you in yeah, the playground. Yeah, that's right, in the playground. <laughs> that's right, absolutely. So and, of course, one of the young boys was crying because someone had pushed him over. That's which right. Which we had to deal with. I mean, we had to interrupt the interview, didn't we? That's and we right. had to go off and, yeah. and deal with that. And you can see that reflected in, mm. in the changes in your blood pressure. Clearly, we don't have moment-to-moment fluctuations in your blood pressure here, so we can't tie it to particular events as we did before. But in general terms, your blood pressure changes are reflecting the changes in your heart rate as you move through the day. I see. Going through the data, it was clear that Chris's natural stress response, his fight-or-flight response, was being stimulated regularly throughout the day. This means that hormones like adrenaline and cortisol were probably at quite high levels. Fortunately, Chris is the kind of person who makes sure he unwinds regularly, playing music Eating well, seeing friends, all activities that help bring hormone levels back to normal. I'm sure he'll be fine. Life may be more difficult elsewhere, but the fact is that stress levels in our society are sky-high and rising. And as we've discovered, stress can affect our bodies and make us ill. Most of us get stressed out at least some of the time. Should we be worried? 
What it comes down to is, once again, we are not getting stressed because the locusts are eating our crops or because we've got to wrestle people for canned food items in the supermarket. We are getting stressed because of psychological variables, feeling an absence of a sense of control, a sense of predictability, a sense of outlets, feeling as if we lack social support, feeling as if things are getting worse, and those are the variables that need to be manipulated. If you were in circumstances in work that are, for example, stressful, figure out which of those you cannot change and learn how to accommodate them. And of the ones you can change, figure out what you can do about it. Figure out which coping outlets work best for you and do them on a regular basis. Don't save your stress management for the once a year, two week vacation. For each weekend, you need to do something every day. You don't do your stress management when you're put on hold on the telephone for 15 seconds. You need to set out time for it. And probably above all else, what the studies show is the single biggest important variable in stress control in people is have social support. Being socially isolated for a primate such as us is a horrible aching stressor and a huge risk factor for health. So, next time you feel your stomach tightening and your pulse racing, remember that stress response cascading through your body. Make sure you find a way to relax. Get those stress hormone levels down and put your stress in its place. Goodbye. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.